Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Overcoming Chronic Illness podcast. My name is Dr. Brian Reid. I'm a naturopathic doctor, and today I am pleased to be joined by Dr. Isabella Wentz. Uh, Dr. Wentz is a doctor of pharmacy, and um, she is quite a heavy hitter in the realm of uh, thyroid disease and uh, Hashimoto's in particular. Um, one of the main reasons that I wanted to chat with Dr. Wentz today, aside from the fact that she just has a real, lot of really interesting articles on her uh, or um, uh, yeah, articles that she's written on her website and social media posts, et cetera, is that um, thyroid physiology is so important for everybody's health, but especially in the realm of complex chronic illness. Um, it's not that thyroid illness or thyroid disease like um, hypothyroidism or Hashimoto's is necessarily a um, specific label that every or a specific diagnosis that everyone with complex chronic illness has. It's not the case. Um, but knowing as much as we can about thyroid physiology, how we can optimize it, the different areas that it influences, um, in my experience, is a really important part of uh, really fully understanding and grasping the pathophysiology behind a lot of these symptoms and issues that folks with complex chronic illness are dealing with uh, when folks have issues with chronic Lyme disease, um, other um, co-infections, chronic viral infections, mold illness, heavy metals, et cetera. These are all things that have a significant negative impact on the thyroid. And so knowing, um, again, about the importance of how the thyroid interplays with other um, parts of our physiology and, and has evolved in our healing process, I think is really valuable. So um, I've uh, not talked to Dr. Wentz before. I haven't seen her post about things like mold illness and things uh, and Lyme disease and whatnot before, although um, maybe she sees that all the time in her practice. I'm not sure. Uh, we're going to find out. Um, but uh, I feel like the information that we're going to talk about um, has a lot of relevance to the world of complex chronic illness. So I'm going to pause the recording and I'll be back in just a moment with Dr. Wentz. All right, everyone. So I'm back with Dr. Wentz. Dr. Wentz, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here. Um, would you uh, mind just telling listeners um, just a bit about your history in terms of how you got into the um, wild, wacky world of thyroid physiology, Hashimoto's, and uh, just where we were chatting a second ago, um, where I didn't know before I recorded the intro that you do have um, a lot of experience with uh, mold illness. Um, would you maybe be able to talk about um, just how you got involved with yeah, um, thyroid physiology, Hashimoto's, and then uh, maybe how you started uh, working with some folks with um, some of these complex chronic illness issues as well, please? Of course. So in full disclosure, I was never interested in the thyroid during pharmacy school. I thought it was kind of a boring condition because all you had to do if you were hypothyroid was take a medication, right? And, and there weren't even a lot of medication options that I learned about. I learned primarily about Synthroid and Levothyroxine. And I did learn about some of the older medications that were deemed to be not as helpful or not the preferred medications during pharmacy school. And I really did not get interested in the thyroid gland until I was diagnosed myself with Hashimoto's um, in my twenties. And this was after some time of having many of the mystery symptoms that people with chronic illness struggle with. So I was fatigued, brain fogged. I was sleeping 12 hours a night and still waking up exhausted. I had carpal tunnel, acid reflux, irritable bowel syndrome, allergies, I mean, my hair was falling out and this was just almost every year I would have a new symptom and this kind of kept going and going. I finally was diagnosed. I had already been a practicing pharmacist. I was diagnosed with Hashimoto's and I was like, oh, great. Now I can do something about this. I can take meds, right? Like hooray. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I, I could add to my medication pile that I take for acid reflux and pain and, and all these other things, right? 
Mm-hmm. And then I started on the medications and I was like, wait a minute, I only feel a little bit better. Like what, what happened? What, what's going on here? And I really started to wonder and think about what happened? Why do I have a thyroid condition in my twenties? I thought this was something older women had what what's going on with me. I, I thought I was living a healthy lifestyle. I was eating like whole wheat and having whey protein shakes for breakfast and just, I was cooking a lot of my own food and exercising every single day. And so I really started to dig deeper into what was going on within my own body, what was happening with Hashimoto's. I had been working as a consultant pharmacist for people with some rare disorders where there wasn't like a standard of care from conventional medicine for them. And so I was spending a lot of time in PubMed or patient forums or just looking at research articles on how to best help these people with, with rare disorders. And I was like, well, what, what if there's more information out there for Hashimoto's? And I sure enough came across like a, a mother load on PubMed and patient forums and all these wonderful places where I began to sort of unravel the triggers of my own condition and figuring out what interventions I could use to, to make myself better. It's amazing. And um, so many of my guests um, and many of my colleagues as well, it's like we've all had kind of our our health journey that kind of led us into this more like, you know, shall we say like functional medicine realm or at least outside of the box realm. So such a common story. And also find a disproportionately large number of my guests have also said like, you know, I, I didn't really plan to get into this, but like it just kind of I fell into it or it found me or something like that. So it's it's interesting how there's that, that common thread, I think, or a, a common theme. Um, so as far as, um, you know, so you, you discovered these things for yourself and then, um, and maybe this is me having a little, a bit of ignorance around it, but at least you, and I'm, I'm in Canada, you're, you're in the U S you're, you're in the U S I believe. Right. Um, so maybe that our healthcare systems are notably different in many ways. Um, but how, how was it that you started kind of like interfacing with, or like working with patients or, or whatnot? Like how did, how did it kind of go from, oh, I'm, um, sleuthing all these things for myself to help myself get well. Like how did that translate into, you know, working with patients, working with other people? Um, could you speak to that a little bit, please? I, once I got my own health back, I really wanted to shout it from the rooftops. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I ended up writing a book and started a blog and started consulting with other people with Hashimoto's. And going through some of the same processes that I had been going through. So if I had a person with Hashimoto's and all these symptoms, I would say, let's get these labs tested. These are some of the supplements you can try out. These are some of the root causes to look at and, you know, kind of to tie back our conversation together. I had to learn about a lot of these triggers, including mold toxicity, because for one person, Hashimoto's might be triggered by gluten sensitivity or celiac disease. You remove the gluten. And you've got a brand new person that's thriving for another person they get off of gluten and it doesn't help right and so then you have to dig a little bit deeper and you have to look at okay what are what are the what are the nutrient deficiencies how's your stress response are you overburdened with toxins are there other things going on in your life like chronic infections so i just really began to I, you know, I, I kind of had this little bit of knowledge for myself and then I started working with, with clients and I, I gained a lot more insight into potential triggers. Like not everybody had the triggers that I did. Right. Um, and not everybody had the same triggers, but there are different patterns that I started to see and definitely mold toxicity being one of them, chronic infections like H pylori, um, a certain protozoal parasite known as blastocystis hominis. A lot of these things have been, um, 
Some of them have been produced in research, but I've also just seen from clinical experience of people's lab tests where you can see on their labs that this is a, a recurring pattern. I had so many people with H. pylori and blasto where I had to get really familiar with how to treat um, these pathogens. Um, a lot of practitioners would say, oh, you know, you have blasto, there's just no way you can get rid of it. So I had to get um, really creative with protocols and figuring out exactly how to how to address the root causes. Um, I'd like to pick your brain a bit about the blasto treatment, if you don't mind. Um, but uh, it's just a good uh, reminder for me to mention that uh, nothing that we're talking about during our uh, chat today should be construed as medical advice. This is all for informational purposes only. And for folks listening, if uh, you need medical advice, please talk to your healthcare provider to get that advice. Um, so with uh, with that um, caveat out of the way, um, would you mind speaking a little bit to um, what types of um, therapeutics or what type of approach has been successful to help get rid of blastocystis hominis and uh, uh, folks that you've worked with? Um, so I've worked with things like berberine and oil of oregano and wormwood for 60 days at a time. That can be helpful. Um, and then I've worked with uh, prescription medications like Alinea. That can be helpful as well. And for a while, I had this like super aggressive protocol. And then I came across a research article talking about sarcomyces boulardii, um, which works to raise our secretory IgA levels. And it had like a tremendous success rate with children just over the course of 30, I want to say 15 or 30 days of just using that with clearing blasto. Um, and so some of the patterns I've seen in my clients, especially the ones that have like multiple protozoa is they tend to have that low secretory IgA, right? And this could be a lot of reasons, immune suppression, mold, certain parasites, various infections can kind of modulate that. Uh, secretory IgA, stress can do that, you know, mm -hmm. different types of microbes. And so I was like, okay, let's focus on the secretory IgA and sarcomyces boulardii is really great at raising that. And I haven't really needed to go through more of those, I guess, intensive protocols with, um, with blasto. It's pretty much, I would, if somebody is willing and able to take sarcomyces boulardii, then that's what I would use as a first line for 60 days, one twice, one capsule twice a day of, of a high quality nutraceutical brand. Yeah, that's, that's great. Yeah. Saccharomyces boulardii is just such a interesting little powerhouse. Like, you know, where it's like, oh, like it's one of the few things that can help with like C. diff. It's like, that's a really hard thing to treat or like blastocystis. So yeah, it's really great clinical pearl, but uh, what a mighty little yeast molecule it is. Um, how do you, if you don't mind sharing, like, how do you um, explain to folks um, what Saccharomyces boulardii is, is kind of doing um, in their bodies? Like, I, I know some folks, um, what I've mentioned it, you know, some of uh, the patients that come in, they've been around the block, you know, many, many different practitioners are reading stuff all the time. Like, they're just, you know, more educated than a lot of clinicians out there. They're like, oh, like, that's yeast. Like, I don't want to put yeast into my body, um, or they, they have some concerns around it. So um, if someone is has concerns about taking Saccharomyces, um, do you mind sharing how you would assuage their fears? Um, yeah, it's definitely not the same as like a candida or mold. It's a beneficial yeast. So it actually does work to displace pathogens in the gut. It has so many, so much research behind it from anything from food poisoning to helping relieve that to being an adjunct for H. pylori infections to helping with candida and mold, a um, whole bunch of different protozoal infections. And what it does is it raises our natural immune response that we have inside of our gut. So it makes us one, able to fight off the infections better 
by ourselves and it makes us less susceptible to like getting reinfected. So um, I'll give you an example. My husband and I went to um, Dominican Republic for this beautiful vacation. We shared a meal. It was kind of suspect. And I was taking Saccharomyces boulardii. I was, you know, had a little bit of, um, you know, bloating, didn't feel great and was fine after that where my husband ended up with food poisoning. So it is something that's very, very incredible. It just really boosts your immune response and it's, it acts as an additional positive uh, microbe in your gut, but it doesn't colonize, which is a really nice thing. So it kind of like, you know, it's like comes in, cleans up and then leaves. It's, um, it's just a beautiful organism. And yeah, it's lovely when those little helpers can come through and not stick around longer than we need them for. Um, and kind of, uh, in a sense on that note, um, for folks who are say, you know, say they had a really persisting case of blastocystis hominis or, or candida or something like that. And you want to bring the, you're bringing the Saccharomyces glardii into the mix. Um, would you typically, uh, just work with it for say like 15 to 30 days as it, as you mentioned in that one study in pediatric patients, or, um, are there some patients where you're like, ah, I think I want you to be on this for like months and months to like, you know, try to boost up that secretory IgA um, as much as possible? Or do you find there's relapse when people come off of it? I will say generally, I like to see protocols for parasites for 60 days minimum. When I went through some functional training um, a decade plus ago, uh, they talked about different parasite life cycles and they tend to be, you know, 28 days to 30 days. So just to be on the safe side, I try to utilize them for at least 60 days. Blasto doesn't, it does have some different types of forms. Like it, it can be like an assist form. Maybe it's a little bit harder for, um, you know, for, for things to penetrate it or for the immune system to overcome it. So to be on the safe side, I'm kind of like the longer, the better. Yes. The study said under a month, but like, why not do it for two months? And rather than getting like 80 to 90% efficacy, maybe we can improve that. And in some cases, if somebody's got something else going on, like a candida overgrowth or SIBO, then I might, you know, add in like the berberine or oil of oregano, just really depends on the person. But for a lot of times, if it's just that, that the polarity just works really well. Wonderful. Well, thank you for sharing about that. Um, one of the things that's kind of loosely related to that and that if you're running, say, a comprehensive stool analysis, they're going to get that secretory IgA. Another marker on there is a fecal elastase. Um, I was uh, poking around on your website yesterday to see what can I, what kind of questions can I ask Dr. Wentz, try to keep it, you know, interesting and fresh for her, um, not just be like, just talk about Hashimoto's and that's it. Um, and so one of the things I was really um, uh, um, hurting to see is that you were talking about um, exocrine pancreatic insufficiency in one of your articles. Um and I feel like that's something that's starting to get into the zeitgeist a little bit more. I've been hearing more people talk about these more like, um, I don't know, like milder versions, not like the full blown, like my pancreas has been destroyed by chronic pancreatitis or pancreatic cancer, but more of these like um, more like functional medicine diagnoses of like, you know, mild or quasi EPI or whatnot. So uh, would you mind um, speaking a bit to um, uh, um to what extent, uh, or sorry, let me start again. Uh, would you mind speaking to um, your experience with EPI? Um, kind of what types of um, uh, numbers you're looking at and um, on, say, a, for a fecal elastase, like what you consider to be clinically relevant and what type of um, treatment uh, intervention seems to be helpful for folks when they are dealing with EPI to some extent? Um, sure. So if we're looking, and I typically work with the 
with the GI map test, I have the most experience. I've had about, I've reviewed about 300 of them. So I'll use the numbers there. Generally, um, I would say anything under 500 would be an indication that you might need to support your pancreatic function. Anything under 200 would be kind of a, more of a red flag that this is more urgent. I was started seeing this pattern a few years back, maybe eight years ago or so. And at the time, there wasn't really anything about it other than, you know, EPI. And the thought process was that this was something that happened that you essentially had to get on pancreatic enzymes for the rest of your life and it never went away. This was just your destiny, right? And I haven't really found that to be the case. I would say for most people, it does tend to be reversible. I would recommend like a short-term use of some pancreatic enzymes. I love Pure Encapsulations makes a fantastic clean version of them. Um, there are prescription ones available too that some people might utilize the symptoms associated might be like dry skin, malabsorption of fats, um, a lot of digestive issues. The other things to consider with that is figuring out if the person has some infections going on. I like want to say that it's associated with protozoal infections, but looking at my data, it just doesn't match up. So um, I know some of the research does suggest that you might have that with like Giardia or another kind of infection, but I, I guess, you know, looking at my, my stats of, of, you know, this person had low elastase and, you know, some of them did have parasites. Some of them did not. I do think it warrants a greater exploration. I feel like potentially um, mold toxicity can also play a role in that, especially if the gallbladder is affected. So it, it does warrant a deeper investigation. I will say in my experience, people need the pancreatic enzymes short-term and then we work on whatever else is going on. I, I'm i never doing like just one thing. I Oftentimes it's like you're adjusting a few different dials to get the body back into, mm -hmm. into feeling well, right? And optimal. Right. Um, <clears throat> some of the, uh, there's a couple of um, folks that um, seem to be quite um, knowledgeable in the, you know, functional gastroenterology realm. And they were talking about how in their experience, they've seen um, SIBO being correlated with kind of this, like, I don't know, I'm, I'll just call it EPI, but I feel like it's, it kind of needs its own name, like, like a, I don't know, mild EPI or pseudo EPI or something. I don't know. But um, anyways, um, have you noticed any correlation with SIBO and uh, folks needing, uh, like having lower elastase levels? Definitely. And usually um, with the SIBO protocols, what I typically do is I'm usually if I have a person with SIBO, I'm also looking at like H. pylori and I'm looking at their enzyme status and I'm looking at their mitochondrial function because I feel like SIBO isn't necessarily, I mean, it's, it's, it is a root cause, but it, there's a lot of things going on when people have SIBO. So a lot of times I'm looking at it from a few different lenses in a few different angles. It's like, why did the person have SIBO in the first place? It's not just, um, you know, sometimes it is just one cause, but a lot of times it's like, okay, then there's also H. pylori. So that's setting you up for low stomach acid. And so then you end up with SIBO and that could lead to that pancreatic, those pancreatic um, enzymes not working optimally. So yes. Um, and I, I, I don't think it's necessarily like you treat SIBO and that gets better though. So I, I want to be very clear about that where people are like, oh, it's always SIBO. There's sometimes there's more than that. There's a, like I said, a few different dials that need to be adjusted. 
Yeah, hundred percent. And yeah, just, I feel like some clinicians get a little stuck on like, oh, like SIBO is the root cause, like full stop. It's like, oh, why, why is the SIBO there in the first place? And, and maybe in some cases it's a little more cut and dry, like, oh, is a, you know, food poisoning, you know, gastritis induced, you know, um, you know, antifinclin antibody kind of um, induced thing. And then some cases like, no, it's very much something else. Um, so just, uh, to kind of explore that a little bit further, if you don't mind. So if let's say, like, say in addition to, um, you know, food poisoning induced SIBO or hypochlorhydria, um, induced SIBO, are there other, um, upstream factors that you've found or like kind of root cause factors that have led to SIBO, um, in your experience? Sure. So definitely, as I mentioned, H. pylori through its way of suppressing stomach acid that can lead to SIBO. Um, as you mentioned, low um, stomach acid, sometimes that could be from hypothyroidism, gastric motility issues. Sometimes that's a thyroid issue too. So making sure your thyroid is properly supported. Um, sometimes it could be mitochondrial dysfunction too. What I have found for a lot of people is utilizing carnitine that sometimes helps to um, I guess, support the gastric motility, right? Because um, carnitine supports our muscle function and we need to have that supported in order to properly move food along our intestine. So those are the things that I'm really looking at is, is when I work with a person with like gut issues and SIBO or whatnot that I'm like, okay, let's start with treating H. pylori oftentimes. And then we're gonna do some digestive enzyme support we're going to make sure that we've got the motility figured out. We're going to focus on clearing out what's going on. And then sometimes I feel like, you know, even like on the back end, it could be like parasites too, that could be causing us to have the issues with that, you know, with, with some SIBO overgrowth. So I, I really try to do like a, a, a top to bottom approach, comprehensive approach to, to try to make sure that, um, you know, it, it, you can treat it and then you're not retreating it every, every few, every other month. You're like, oh, it grew back or we didn't really get it. And it's back again. Let's get on another treatment. So I try to look at that from head to toe. Um, I think that's so, so important to, I know patients, again, the ones who, you know, have done a lot of reading and podcast listening and things like that before coming in to see me, they're like, Oh, like, oh no, like they'll, I'll give them the SIBO diagnosis. Like, you know, we do the test and lactulose breath test, like you have SIBO. And like, some of them are really distraught. They're like, oh my gosh, I've been reading about this. Like, I know it comes back like at least five times on average, I'm going to have this for forever. And I, I think that in, in my experience, and it sounds like in your experience, like when we're comprehensive, like that doesn't have to be the case. You know, we really get at the root cause of why they had it in the first place. But I think, I think a reason that there, or I think the reason that there is kind of that, um, stereotype out there is that, um, yeah, if clinicians aren't kind of going deep enough, then yeah, it's just, it's going to keep coming back. So it makes, makes a lot of sense. Um, I have two more questions for you around kind of gut health and kind of, kind of SIBO related and, and digestive health. And then maybe we'll branch to another topic. I feel like I'm pigeonholing it all into the, the gut here, but such an important, fascinating topic. Um, but, uh, yeah, just, especially where your doctor of pharmacy, a just perfect guest to ask about this. Cause these are questions I, I wonder about in my own practice. Um, you know, from what I, when I, um, uh, uh, when I first started learning more about how, uh, prevalent, um, or maybe not prevalent, but how like more common that I originally thought that EPI was, um, in our, in our patients that we're working with, you know, where it doesn't have to just be those really extreme cases of, you know, destroyed pancreas is basically or cystic fibrosis or whatnot. Um, kind of the, the mentorship that I was receiving around that was kind of painted this picture of like, you know, Creon or Codazyme, like, uh, for folks listening, these are these, um, you know, pharmaceutical, um, digestive enzyme complexes, like it's kind of the picture is painted, like they're just the cream of the crop and like, you know, things like pancreatin or, or whatnot, like just aren't really going to hold much of a candle to them. Like it was just like a 
completely like league of their own kind of thing. Um, and then as I started, you know, working with patients and here in uh, Nova Scotia and Canada, where I practice, it's, it's very challenging for patients to access anything that's outside of the box at all. Very, very different than um, in a lot of places in the States and whatnot. So uh, it can be very, very hard, if not impossible for them to get prescriptions for things like creatinine and Codazyme. So we're sometimes, you know, I, at the time I was like, well, I guess we're just kind of stuck with just, just, you know, pancreatin. And I had patients where they just have done incredibly well on the pancreatin. And sometimes we may, might need to dose it like quite a bit higher, like, you know, maybe not just one capsule per meal, but maybe like two or three, like in more extreme cases. But I've been finding like more and more that the pancreatin can really hold a, a good candle to the creatinine and Codazyme. And some patients were like, oh, like I don't want to have to pay for the Creon out of pocket, the pancreatin's cheaper and they switch They're like, oh, it's just as good. And then there's some patients where they certainly found that switching from pancreatin to a prescription enzyme did, did seem to work better, but I find it's more often that they're seem to be pretty, pretty equivalent. So I'm just wondering uh, from your experience and especially speaking from your, um, you know, very learned background as a doctor of pharmacy, could you speak to um, kind of what you've seen and what you understand from, you know, say the research literature and whatnot around the kind of relative potency of, you know, um, uh, say creon and codesign versus um versus say pancreatin at, at an appropriate dose like well i do think that there's a time and place for medications like creon so every obviously people with extreme cases and then for dosing children right um you do want to make sure that you're working with a practitioner that could prescribe that if, if that is your case in my experience just with the clients that i've worked with who maybe did not have um, you know, that kind of a diagnosis, the, the pancreatic enzymes that are available through nutraceutical companies. And I know that every country has, there's a lot of, um, a lot of things in Canada that are not available that I use in the United States that are not necessarily available in Canada. So I know the one that I work with, it has pure pancreatin, lipase, protease, and amylase. So it does have a broad coverage of, um, of, of support where people mm -hmm. do really well with it mm -hmm. and they take it, they see a really big difference. Sometimes you do have to dose it up. I do sometimes we'll give them um, a weight-based dosing and you can even use like the Creon website to get some of that dosing for them, mm -hmm. but they do tend to do well. And that said, I don't work, I primarily work with people with thyroid issues and adrenal issues. I don't necessarily work with, you know, patients with like cystic fibrosis or me too. Yeah. No, um, that would be a different, um, you know, I wouldn't necessarily be like, come off of your meds, try this, right? <laughs> be a poor choice. Yeah. Yeah. Too, yeah. Touche. Yeah. Um, just uh, one more question on that, if you don't mind, because uh, my, my understanding is that with uh, Creon, maybe not every form of Creon, but uh, I believe with Codazyme and that anyways, you know, certainly better than me, but I understand that, uh, that sort of the, the most potent ones are in these, um, acid resistant capsules. They're, you know, filled with little micro spherules. Um, and so I'm just wondering if you found that the, uh, say pancreatin, um, supplements that are, that, that you tend to recommend, are they in, um, delayed release capsules or are they just standard capsules? No, they're just in regular capsules, just pure encapsulations makes them. Okay. And they're not delayed release. And I wondered when I was first researching this, like, is this going to work as well? Mm -hmm. um, and it does. So, mm -hmm. it, I mean, like, like, again, I'm not working with people with, um, with these conditions that generally require Creon. I'm working with, with a population that's got digestive distress and we're finding um, low fecal elastase on their tests. And then we're trying to get them better symptomatically. And then we see improvement on, on repeated tests and they're, you know, vitamin markers go up and they, um, they don't have the symptoms of the fat malabsorption anymore. Then 
Yeah. And the, the other, I guess, you know, marketing, right? So with pharmaceutical marketing, and I did work in pharmaceutical sales for some time, there are certain things that are, let's say I, um, let's say fish oils, there's pharmaceutical fish oil, and what claims do they make, right? That, that they have a specialized way to pure, to make the products more pure, right? And that allows them to have a patent. And having, um, you know, Creon, for example, is derived from from pigs, right? Mm-hmm. So they're, it's derived from that. So some of the things that they do have to do to make it a patent is having a specialized technology for delivery of it. So whether that is that delayed release, um, the I mean, the manufacturer would suggest that that's the reason why it works. Is mm-hmm. is it? I'm not sure. So um, again, like I said, I'm not working with with a population that I, that I'm taking off of Creon. I'm working with people who who are symptomatic, right? Yes. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. Um, definitely not. Uh, yeah. In that more, those more niche populations for sure. Um, yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that. Yeah. I, um, have played around with, um, like the, there's a really great, uh, compounding supplement company, um, that we have here locally and they ship products all across Canada. So a little old Nova Scotia, they ship them all over the place. And, um, we can, you know, we, I said, well, why don't we try your pancreatinine delayed release caps? I was thinking, oh, maybe it'll work better. And like, just no difference at all. Uh, I just found the exact same thing. So, um, on paper, you can make an argument for like, oh, it should definitely have to be delayed release, but the proof is in the pudding, you know, the clinical pudding, so to speak. Um, uh, one, one, sorry, one more question for you about this. Um, and then we will, we will get away from the digestive topic. I'm sure eventually, um, I've had a couple of patients just either due to uh, religious reasons or maybe some other reasons where they're like, ah, like I can't consume, um, you know, pig based products. Um, and then of course there's the good old vegans who are like, it can't be from any animal source. So I guess maybe a two-part question. Um, is there a, um, a sort of non, uh, porcine alternative, um, that you've tried like a beef alternative or maybe lamb or something like that for pancreatin? And if so, do you mind sharing what that is? And then, uh, for vegans or folks who for one reason or other, just can't consume an animal based on enzyme. Um, what's the next best option in your experience? Oh man, I don't have a lot of experience with people typically um, that are more plant-based and vegan. One of the things that I've noticed is people tend to do better on animal containing products. So I feel like I scare a lot of the vegans away from from coming to work with me. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, you know, if somebody if somebody was um, ha- held those beliefs, I would try to do and research something for them a little bit more. So a majority of my population is is generally, um, I you know, I'm a proponent of like the paleo diet. So typically I do at, recommend animal protein. Um, the Some of the things that maybe would come to mind, I don't know that they would work as well, would be some like bitter, maybe digestive bitters might help or something like dandelion, something plant-based to kind of support some bioflow to see if that might, might benefit them. Or maybe, um, yeah, that, that I would, I would maybe try some bitters or something to that, to that point. Do you have some great protocols? Um, I, I don't know about great. Um, but I mean, there, I've certainly had, um, some patients who have done really well with, uh, just more like 
you know, um, vegetarian sourced or vegetarian friendly enzymes, like the ones that are grown typically on, you know, aspergillus, um, you know, it's always ironic. Like, oh, let's use mold to make our enzymes. Like what a funny thing. Find most patients tolerate them well. And there's some companies, um, there's one uh, based out of British Columbia called nature farm. They make a product called M seven and it's like quite a high potency, um, enzyme, but it's all, yeah. Uh, veg- like it's all uh, vegan friendly. So, um, but yeah, just in terms of like pound for pound, if someone has low elastase, like I just, those are the patients who are like, oh, like on paper, you seem like you should respond well to an enzyme, but if they've tried non-animal based ones, like, oh, why didn't those work in you? And yet then the pancreatin will work. So, um, uh, yeah, when there's the, uh, restriction on the animal sourcing, then it's been, it's been tricky. Um, the, the one little workaround for if a, if a person or patient can't consume pork products, say for religious reasons, or I have one patient where they're like, I'm just really allergic to anything from a pig and they just mm-hmm. wouldn't, wouldn't take it. Um, there's the company uh, Ancestral Supplements. Um, have you heard of them? Um, the Liver King, who's a little notorious um, on social media <laughs> anyways, but say what you will about the Liver King. Um, I think they make some really, really good um, organ-based products. And they're, they're my if memory serves, their pancreatic tissues from, uh, from cows, like the nice, wonderfully healthy New Zealand cows. So that's been a workaround and uh, that seemed to work well um, for my, the one or two, one or two patients who couldn't consume a pork-based uh, pancreatin. Oh, thank you so much for sharing that. I will have to um, add that. I always have a, um, I try to keep a recommendations for people that are, you know, I have one for nursing moms. I have one for vegetarians. Mm -hmm. I have one for my international readers and clients. So thank you. I will have to research that and add that in. Sure. My my pleasure. Um, Okay. My very last digestion track, digestion track later question. I just, I couldn't let you go without asking you this again, just given your, um, um, uh, doctor of pharmacy background. Um, so prokinetics, um, you know, it seems that procalipride, um, can just be this, you know, miraculous medication for some folks, um, patients here, we have really hard time accessing it. Um, uh, anyways, long story short, really hard to get prescriptions for procalipride here and where I practice in surrounding area. Um, and I just clinically haven't really seen a whole lot of benefit for the majority of patients with non-pharmaceutical prokinetics like ginger or iberogast or things like that. For some patients, they're helpful, but just nothing seems to hold a candle to procalipride. So, um, would you mind sharing what your experience has been with prokinetics? Have you found, um, certain ones seem to work as well as procalipride is procalipride the gold standard in your experience as well, or are there other pharmaceutical agents that can work, um, as well? Would you mind sharing your insight about prokinetics, please? I don't have experience with that particular drug. I do have a, a lot of experience with using carnitine as a prokinetic. Okay. Um, so if you, there is an amazing um, formulation called Motil Pro. I don't know if you have used that from Pure Encapsulations. I've, I've seen it before. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't remember what's in it though. So obviously carnitine and uh, what, what else is in there? If you don't mind. Um, ginger and B6 as P5P. Um, so that does tend to help with motility. So, okay, so you need, for motility, you need um, serotonin. And so what I've found in my experience is a lot of people tend to be low on B6. I do a lot of organic acids testing. I don't know if you've worked with those yeah, a lot. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I'll see deficiencies in like, you know, the, the B6, and I prefer to use P5P, we need that to make ample amounts of serotonin, which works as a natural prokinetic. Um, and then I see deficiencies in carnitine. And so that 
kind of has those great ingredients together. And then the ginger, I feel like works really, really well too in that, um, I guess in, in that synergistic combination. So typically that's going to be my go-to. Um, and that does have a little bit of 5-HTP too. I'll either do that together for people or I'll, I'll do it as a standalone where I might do some carnitine as a standalone and maybe dose it up a bit higher mm -hmm. um, and then do some P5P with it um, and potentially something like magnesium. So that does tend to work well for people that I've worked with. Um, I don't I don't tend to work a lot with prescriptions. A lot of the people that come to me are more interested in natural based products, but I do love like low dose naltrexone too. I think that can be very helpful. And I know that's not super easy to get everywhere. No, it's not. But when people can get it, it can, yeah, sometimes be really helpful. So thanks for sharing that. Um, okay. Well, as, as promised, let's, let's get off the digestive uh, bandwagon here. Um, and I have a few questions for you there. Um, uh, as I said, I was looking at your website uh, last night, just uh, putting together questions for you and um, just folks, I highly recommend checking out Dr. Wentz's website. Um, lots of really good articles on there and just really interesting topics. I mean, I, I say this in a completely non-disparaging way, but like, there's a lot of like thyroid experts out there where it's kind of just, it's a lot of the same stuff over and over again. It's like, let's just keep talking about selenium and, you know, um, gluten-free diets and stuff. And that can be so, so, so important, but, um, there's a lot of, uh, much, um, uh, I don't know, very, very compelling articles on there. So, uh, so thank you for putting those out there, Dr. Wentz, uh, a couple of the topics I wanted to ask you about on there. Um, one of them is, um, about, uh, using low level laser therapy, um, to reduce, um, uh, inflammation in the thyroid gland. Um, I came across a couple of studies about that um, some years ago, really haven't heard anybody else talk about it. Um, we actually did that with one patient where we just could not get her thyroid antibodies to budge. And it was like one of the things that seemed to drop it down. We did maybe 10 sessions or numbers came down. We didn't continue it until they were all the way down to zero, but um, I was excited to uh, see that on your website. So would you mind uh, speaking a little bit to that? And, and uh, have you had much experience with your own patients working with a low level laser therapy for their Hashimoto's? Oh, and that's exciting. Are you a, a provider that offers that in your clinic? Well, um, we, we have a laser device that like we do a photobiomodulation, um, mostly for um, intravenous use for treating chronic infections and things like that. But, um, just there's, we, we've used those like with the infrared setting. To, so just for that one patient. So, so yes, technically yes, but like we just did it with the one patient. Um, so yes, but anyways, that that's, oh yeah, that that's been my, the extent of my experience, but um, Hashimoto's isn't the, uh, I've had a number of patients with Hashimoto's, but usually like, yeah, I have a Hashimoto's diagnosis and like, I can't get out of bed cause I've got, I'm dying from Lyme and all this stuff. So we, we're not usually focused on like dropping antibody numbers. I think it's fascinating, just not a big part of my clinical focus, but, uh, did it with the one patient. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, I definitely want to make sure that there's more awareness about this method, um, for it's a non-invasive method for improving thyroid function, just really tissue healing, tissue regeneration from injuries and inflammation and autoimmunity. The initial research studies were published over a decade ago now in a clinic in Brazil that was focused on um, endocrinology. And they, what, what they did is they essentially like did an ultrasound of the thyroid gland and they, they drew it on a person and then they would administer low level laser treatments these are sometimes known as cold lasers, not to be mistaken with like hot lasers that like burn, right? And like destroy tissue. These actually work to regenerate and heal tissue. Now, 
I will say their results were just phenomenal where I was like, I told my husband, we're starting a laser company, right? Like we're doing <laughs> this for thyroid. Um, and they had like, people were lowering their dosage of thyroid medications and they were really lowering their thyroid antibodies and getting into remission and symptoms were getting better and thyroid glands were normalizing on ultrasound. Right. So it just was a very profound effect. I know, um, let's say we had, I think people had like antibodies reducing by half, right. Or one person had a drop from 2300 something to like 135 thyroid antibodies, which can be a marker of how aggressive the attack is on your thyroid gland. It's definitely not the only thing you want to look at. Um, I haven't seen it to be like a miracle, like not every single person I have referred for it has come back and been like, this, this was my cure. This was the be, be it all end all. That said, I do think it does have a lot of value. And I have had people who were, who said this, this has worked really well for me. It, it helped me normalize my thyroid gland. Uh, it was previously very swollen and it has helped me reduce my thyroid antibodies. I've been able to lower my dosage of thyroid medications. I feel so much better. Um, I have so much more energy. Typically the energy is what I, what I will hear about that people will say their energy really improves once they get that, um, the red light therapy, the, the laser therapy over their thyroid glands. Um, and, and, you know, you can see changes in energy really quickly versus the antibodies. It might take a little while to kind of track the effects of an intervention. It is something that I would say, if you have access to it, then get it. I will say that the lasers are a bit intimidating. There's not a ton of practitioners that like to use them. I like, I ordered the one from Brazil and I was like, I'm going to burn somebody's eye out with this, right? Like you have to go to the training for it, right? And there are thousands of dollars. So I really appreciate that more practitioners are interested in this. And also in the recent years, people have come out with like red light therapy devices. And these are patient administered and they're usually like $100 to $200. So I have had some people that have reported benefits with using those. They can just order them and use them in their own homes. And some people have had a reduction in symptoms, antibodies, and you know, they're multi-purpose too. So they can help you with your skin and just accelerating some, some healing. Now, I mean, let's say you have Hashimoto's because you have a blasto infection in your gut and that's messing with your immune system and using that over your thyroid gland, it's kind of like a, a topical thing, right? You do need to figure out what else is going on in your body. So I, 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 you know, it's not the cure. It's not a hundred percent cure for, for all types of thyroid issues, but it's such a helpful tool to consider if you have access. Great. Thanks for sharing about that. I yeah, haven't had anybody's brain to pick about that. So you're the perfect person. So thank you for sharing. Um, another, um, article that you had on your website was actually, shoot, I want to ask this other question first, just, just in case we don't have time to get to it, because I definitely want to ask you about this. Um, uh, have you, um, heard of, uh, there, there's, you know, a particular clinician out there. I'll uh, maybe not mention names, just depending on what, what your thoughts are about it. There's a clinician out there though, who's uh, written a book about, um, a paraphrasing or simplifying, basically going on like a very, very, very low iodine diet, um, to help, uh, resolve, um, you know, Hashimoto's and I think even like just hypothyroidism in general, 
um, and trying to like essentially get one's iodine intake down to virtually nothing, like in their diet, avoiding any medications or supplements that have any iodine in there. Um, and I'm just wondering if you've had experience with that, um, like using a very, very low iodine approach, or if you've heard of it and thought like, nope, that doesn't make sense for X, Y, or Z reason. I'm just wondering if you could speak to that, um, please. So I saw the research about that a while ago, um, decade plus ago, there was some research about people being put on an iodine, low iodine diet, and then their thyroid function normalized in certain cases of subclinical hypothyroidism. Um, the antibodies did not necessarily, I don't believe the antibodies were something that they measured in this particular study. I have, um, I thought it was a very, very interesting approach considering that high doses of iodine can unfortunately trigger Hashimoto's, right? Um, iodine tends to be like this Goldilocks nutrient when you have to get the amounts to be just right for the thyroid gland to function properly. Mm -hmm. And doses that are too high can be inflammatory. And then doses that are too low can lead to um, iodine deficiency, hypothyroidism. I've only had a few clients that I've put on low iodine protocols. And again, it's not like this is the only thing that I did with them. So I can't tell if it was that protocol that worked or not. In my case, the clients were generally people who were like, who read on the internet or were working with somebody that gave them like really high doses of iodine or were eating like the seaweed snacks every day. And they were like, can you come help me? Like my thyroid antibodies are through the roof. My TSH is, is off the charts. Um, one woman started off with subclinical hypothyroidism, got on like the high iodine protocol and her TSH was like something like hundred thyroid antibodies, thousand plus and bedridden. So I was like, let's put you on a low iodine protocol, uh, right? Uh, mm -hmm. To try to get your body back into um, getting more normalized. But it was also like H. pylori, which can trigger Hash autoimmune thyroid disease. So we worked on that. We worked on her emotional health, right? We worked on, um, I believe this client also had blasto. So we worked on that. And then sure enough, the thyroid function normalized with time. Um, we got her like to get on the optimal dosage of thyroid hormone and some selenium to kind of balance that oxidative stress. So I do feel like it's, it is a wonderful tool when used appropriately, but I, it's, it's great to write books because you can have like amazing protocols. Right. But like, not everybody's going to fit a protocol, right? Like for even like you have, even in the same family, like if I, we all want sarcomyces boulardii, I can't give my son to, to swallow a pill. My husband thinks it's nasty. Like somebody else um, is immune compromised and they can't use it. So I think it's a worthy protocol, especially if somebody has had excessive exposure to iodine, right? Um, that said, is it, is it going to work for everybody? I don't have enough experience with it. Typically I really focus on like, how do we get your thyroid hormone optimized? And a lot of times it does include, um, thyroid medications, and another thing that I found works really well in people with subclinical hypothyroidism is like selenium and myonositol. Sometimes that's what you might need alone to really get into balance. Um, so I, I don't know if you've had experience with it. That, that's just been my experience. I think I love, you know, there's so many different approaches and I love the awareness about all of them and not, you know, there's not like, I wish it was like a single nutrient deficiency, right. Or a single single trigger, but unfortunately it's not that simple. It'd be so easy if it was all just like iron deficiency anemia. It's like, oh, that one right. magical nutrients, everything's better, everything, and you're done. 
Um, yeah, I, I put uh, uh, maybe six or seven patients on the um, super low iodine diet that were just really motivated to see if you know they could drop their um, uh, anti-TPO antibodies. And um, yeah, unfortunately, I really didn't see any um, obvious difference uh, with those cases. So I uh, may have just been uh, unlucky. I uh, had some other colleagues where they've used that approach and they you know had they were seeing success with it. So it's always great to get, read the book and then, well, what are people seeing in, in the field? Sometimes you have to wonder if the people who write the book have these like just magical powers that they it just works in their hands, but not in others. But yeah, so I, I'm, I'm not <laughs> sure. But, so it seems that way sometimes. But anyways, jury's out for me. But I was, yeah, thank you for your feedback on that. And, and I think there's a way to screen people too. So let's say if you're working with a population that's highly motivated to get off of thyroid meds, maybe they're more willing to clean up and really focus on this diet where the average person may not be. So it really is, I feel like a bit of an art and science where you have to look at the person and their individual risk factors and triggers and what they're really willing to do, right? Like some people are like, I don't want it you know, I, I don't want to be pill bowl baggins. I don't want to take 20 supplements. So it's like, <laughs> Hey, let's go to diet. And other people are like, my life is going to be miserable. If I have to be on the autoimmune paleo diet, it's like, okay, let's, you know, or I don't have the budget for testing. So you really have to work with people where they are, I think. And I, I, I love having access to so many amazing protocols, but I, I don't think, um, any one of them is, is, you know, like the one thing you need to do. Oftentimes it's like, I'm doing 10, 10 different things with people to really bring their bodies back into balance. We're adjusting a few different dials. And I think sometimes people that read my blog get frustrated. They're like, how many different causes are there? Or like, and, uh -huh. and like, they think every, they need to do everything that I write about. And I'm like, well, no, I'm just highlighting some of the things I've seen in a particular person. So not everybody needs to be autoimmune paleo. Some people maybe just need to be gluten-free, but this is another thing to consider if you've already been gluten-free, right? I've written about like oxalate sensitivities and I've written about, um, I don't think I've written about salicylates, but I, I'll have clients with salicylate sensitivity mm -hmm. issues. And I try to raise awareness about it and people are like, well, what am I supposed to eat? Ice cubes? So yeah. right. lots of protocols out there. It's true. Yeah. But we need to have those options for patients because as you said, it's not one size fits all. And um, yeah, that's great that you're, yeah, uh, keeping your, your horizons nice and broad because it's, it's so important. Um, if you only have a, you know, one tool in the tool bag and it doesn't work, you, that's, that's not good for the patient. So, um, Dr. Wentz, just as we're winding down on our time, um, I'm just wondering if there's um, anything else that uh, we haven't talked about today that you'd like to share with listeners. Um, I'll, I'll ask you in just a minute about how folks can uh, either work with you or different online offerings you have or whatnot, but just any other, uh, like little clinical pearls or tidbits that you'd like to share that we haven't uh, covered. Think that we may have froze, folks. I'm going to just pause the recording yeah, here. Oh, oh, hi, Doctor Wentz. Sorry, I think you uh, froze on me there. Um, would you? Uh, sorry, I, I just finished asking you um, if there's anything else you wanted to share, and then I'm sorry I didn't hear anything after that. Um, so, would you mind repeating what you were saying, please? Absolutely. Yeah. Whenever people struggle with chronic illness or a condition and they go through the conventional route, the kind of common answer I get is like, 
I was tested for everything and nothing is wrong with me, but why do I feel so terrible? Mm -hmm. And with some of the functional medicine testing that I might do, or even just like written assessments where I have people rate certain things, we come up like in the red for a lot of things. So we find a lot of things that are out of balance. And I feel like sometimes that can be very overwhelming and intimidating for the person. They're like, this is wrong and this is wrong and this is wrong. And what I really hope for them is to shift that perspective to say, we found something that's out of balance. And this is actually good news because now when we bring it into balance, like usually with everything that you start balancing, you start feeling better. And that kind of like load of chronic illness lessens. Um, and I know, I know it's a lot to ask for because people are always like, oh no, I have mold and I have this deficiency and I have that. And they're like, you know, I, I'm walking around with all of this stuff. This is, I'm never going to get better, but like just finding those things and being aware of it is like a path to healing. And then it's like getting through um, and addressing them. That's, that that's going to get you there. But just like, that's the first step is that awareness, right? percent. And um, I, I've had patients where it's almost like the opposite reaction where they're like, so frustrated that nobody's found anything. And then we finally find things they're like, you know, it's going to sound crazy, but like, I'm so happy I have SIBO. Cause at least now we know, well, you know, at least part of what's going on and we have something we can work on. But, but yeah, if you find like, you're like, Oh, I've got SIBO and old and Lyme and Bartonella and everything is like, Oh, that, yeah, that could definitely get pretty overwhelming. So it's a balancing act, I suppose. Yeah. And then, you know, just really taking it one day at a time and one step at a time, one protocol at a time mm -hmm. is um, pacing yourself to overcome the chronic illness for many people. I feel like when you've been sick for, you know, 10, 20 years, I know I personally had 10 years worth of um, just feeling awful. And it took about three years to like feel human and amazing. Like, but I was doing little things that got me better. So I just want to hold out that hope for people. Like whenever you do take charge of your own health and you start working towards better health, if you're going in the right direction, you're going to get better. And I, I really hope um, I hold out that hope for everybody listening that, that they can get better and that there is a path to healing. Wonderful. Very well said, Dr. Wentz. Um, well, just as we're uh, winding down on our last couple of minutes here, would you mind sharing with folks um, how they can uh, work with you if you work with folks uh, long distance or um, in, in person, um, online uh, offerings you have for courses, um, maybe mention uh, your books, so website, social media, you're, you're everywhere, Dr. Wentz. I'm going to post links to everything, but would you mind uh, just giving us a quick rundown of how folks can uh, um, have more access to you, please? Absolutely. I love empowering people to take charge of their own health. And I've actually written four books. So far, three of them are on Hashimoto's. Um, Hashimoto's protocol, probably the most popular one. What you can do to take charge of your own health when you have Hashimoto's, what kind of changes you may need to make, some broad spectrum protocols that can help you feel better, um, how to best work with your doctor. And then I also have a new book called The Adrenal Transformation Protocol. This one is really for people who are struggling with fatigue and people who are like, I've tried everything and I'm just exhausted all the time. I've got brain fog, maybe some weight fluctuations, trouble sleeping, anxiety, pain in their bodies, kind of that um, um, overwhelmed with stress type of person. This is the person that I hope to reach with that book because, you know, we really can turn people around sometimes in four to six weeks with just some of these foundational protocols. And then I also have a few online programs. One of them is coming out really soon. It's the root cause reset. And this is really focused on environmental toxins. 
to give your body a way to gently start processing them out. So it's not for people who are already doing like a lot of um, clean living and have gone through a lot, but a lot of times when people want to figure out how to reduce their toxic burden, we do it through supporting their detox pathways and then just teaching them about how to, um, how to start, how to stop adding more toxins into their body. So it's, it's a great primer for people who are dealing with like mold exposure and toxin exposure, and maybe people who don't tolerate things like the fasting or, you know, I just, I like the prolon or all, all of those fast mimicking things or really forceful detoxes. This is more of a really gentle way to, to get your body to start um, processing some toxins a bit better. And then you feel better when, when that happens. And my website is thyroidpharmacist.com. And um, where I was on there last night, as mentioned, uh, all the book uh, links to buy the books are on there um, and the online programs are on there as well, if memory serves. Is that correct? Yes, they're usually just offered like once or twice a year. So, um, but people can find out more about them. Yeah. Awesome. Great. Well, there's, um, there's rotating ones. <laughs> wonderful. Well, um, Dr. Wentz, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate all the wisdom and insight you shared with us today. And um, it was just really a pleasure to have a chance to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me and thank you for creating this space um, to provide some guidance and hope for people with chronic illness. I really, really appreciate the work that you're doing in the word world, um, you know, with your patients and with the world, just getting this message out. Thanks so much. It's very kind of you to say. Well, um, thanks for everyone uh, um, listening to or watching this episode of the Overcoming Chronic Illness podcast. Um, we uh, hope you enjoyed it and please stay tuned for the next one.